Hello, I'm your host, Angelina Janis, and this is the CXCast. All right, everybody, welcome back to the CX cast. It's just me in the host chair today. So hopefully I don't mess that one up, Martin. Guess you'll have to tell me once this goes live. Anyways, I'm joined today by a colleague of mine whom I love dearly. It's Michelle Beeson, and she is a senior analyst covering digital strategy and customer experience in the UK. Hey, Michelle. Hi. Hi. Well, I should say you're based in the UK, but I mean, your research holds no global boundaries. I know my accent's going to start confused. <laughs> I know. <laughs> she's she's lived everywhere. She will her research will apply everywhere. It's going to be a great conversation and related to that, no boundaries. We're talking about shared CX today. Tell me why this topic is an, of interest to you, Michelle. Well, I've hit up against it because I was looking at digital commerce strategies between for brands and specifically looking at the relationships and partnerships between brands and retailers. And as I was looking at that, it was very clear that there's more and more of an issue around who owns the customer or this perception of ownership. And in reality, the customer experience is shared between both sides of, of that partnership. Um, and so there is more and more of an issue around what is shared customer experience and what does it require to be successful? And so when I, when I say shared CX, I'm talking about when an organization is relying on some kind of intermediary or business partner to interact with or sell to the end customer. So it's kind of like that that partner is the middle B of the B2B2C. Fascinating, yes. And I have found that B2B2C often those organizations feel very unique. And actually, side note, in my culture energy research, culture is very unique in a B2B2C org. They tend to feel more adaptable, more purposeful than B2C or B2B organizations. Very interesting. So there is something different about being the first B in the B2B2C world. That is interesting. But I mean, it's not all daisies and sunshine and wonderful culture. I assume when you were looking into this, you observed some problems in B2B to see relationships that are affecting shared CX. Exactly. So you can have different types of B2B to see. It can manifest in a range of different industries. So I, I hit up against this topic because I was looking at the relationships between brands and retailers, i.e. brands that are selling through and relying on their retail partners to sell to an end customer. But it can also relate to insurance. So an insurance company using brokers to sell their products to the end customer or an auto brand, a car brand that's using dealerships to sell to their end customer, or even just the retailers themselves when they're sending an online order for delivery, their intermediary partner is the delivery company. But the trouble is, is that once you are relying on that middle B to manage and support your end customer experience, the first B, the, the initial brand, is somehow less connected to the customer. There can be problems in terms of their ability to see the customer experience and have an understanding or insight into what 
their customers are, are doing, what the experience is like. And also across all industries, there tends to be an issue around that partnership is very, very focused on the relationship between the two businesses rather than the end customer experience. So it's all about what are the SLAs and the service level agreements that are set between the two businesses? You know, are targets being met? Um, what are the operational process between those? Are we hitting sales targets? Whereas the word customer or even just the end customer experience is not always or not traditionally a part of those key KPIs and what is focused on between the, in that partnership. And it needs to be, especially in a world where customer experience is at the forefront of our conversations. And particularly when you're thinking about brands and retailers, you have brands that are wanting to build direct customer relationships and even selling and engaging directly with customers, even if they're selling through retail partners as well. And so the customer needs to be part of those service level agreements. Otherwise, you will have an unintended consequence of negative customer experiences because you're focusing so much on the operational processes. One example of this that I've, I, I experienced quite a bit. So we all order online and get delivery sent to us. And frequently I'll get a text message that will say, you know, your delivery is being uh, delivered by, I don't know, here it's DPD, I'm in the UK, it could be UPS, whatever the logistics partner is. It'll be delivered between 10 and 11, order number 1085234. No mention of the brand I purchased it from, what the product is. I have no idea what's actually going to be delivered between that time frame, but I know it's coming. That All of that information in that text is geared towards what the two business partners need to know within that experience, as opposed to what me as the end customer needs to know. And I think that's a great example of just a, a small moment of where shared customer experience comes to life, that it's focused on the business-to-business -business partnership at the expense of what the customer really needs and it's impacting the customer negatively. That makes total sense. And I, I had this fascinating interview with a CX team leader at DoorDash once that was basically describing what you're describing and how they can't really make a process change decision and try to target the end customer without affecting the middle customer. So those conversations need to be really clear and the trade-offs need to be really clear. And I know given your expertise in journey mapping as well, that you must be thinking in terms of all the different layers of these journeys. In fact, one question I might throw at you, is this even mappable, these, these yeah. complex relationships? Like, can we look at a single figure and see the agent, the end customer, the employer, the end customer, all these people. I mean, this is when things like jury mapping feel like, to me, they fall apart a little bit. Yeah. It, I mean, it's difficult to do, but it's absolutely possible. But it's more successful when you have both partners in the room and they're able to share what they can bring to the table on the end insights around the end customer. And it brings up an issue around, you know, if you're really focused on the end customer experience and care about that, and each partner should, because that end customer experience is going to drive revenue and customer value and growth. So they need to be, but they need to sit down together and really be open to sharing insights, sharing data and working in partnership, whether it is to map out that customer experience and then 
overlay what the partner experience is, you know, what is, what are the dependencies and contributions for either partner in terms of supporting the end customer experience and what are the pain points? I mean, you can map the partner experience and you can map the customer experience and you can put it all together. It depends what the objective of that exercise is, I guess, of course. Mm-hmm. And the the incentives is an interesting angle here. I know in your research, you've looked at disintermediation, which I think of when I think of that big, scary word disintermediation, I think of Amazon buying Whole Foods, buying trucks for last mile delivery, and just erasing or owning partners. And that's not a reality for everybody. I would assume. No. So there must be some sort of incentive to share accountability, to actually walk through these SLAs and question them. What is that incentive? Yeah, exactly. And I think it, it depends on what organization you are, right? If, if we're thinking about brands and retailers and specifically, yes, they want to build a direct customer relationship, but the revenue that they generate will actually not be directly from customers. Like their ability to sell directly to customers is only applied to a very small proportion of what they're doing. So in effect, in other words, they are reliant on their retail partners to go to market. That is their main course of selling to customers. So for those kind of organizations, absolutely, they're incentivized to want to work closely with their retail partners and support the end customer experience. But that's exactly where you have issues around channel conflict or the fear of disintermediation coming up. So retailers and and also this idea of one or the other business owning the customer, which I would say, actually, if you're in partnership, you have a shared responsibility and accountability for the customer. But in any case, with channel conflict, there's a lot that can be done in terms of how you change the dynamics of your partnership and how you're working together that can alleviate some of those channel conflict concerns. So one example would be the argument that if a brand starts to sell directly to their customers, that they're quote unquote, stealing customers from their retail partners. But in reality, a lot of customers are still gonna go to their retail partners. And one way of alleviating that, that brands have, have taken on is adding buy button links on their own branded website. So the customer has the option of, yes, buying direct from the brand if they so choose, especially if the particular item they want is only available from the brand because not all retailers aren't gonna sell every single item a brand has in their portfolio. But also it gives the option to go directly to a retailer's website and buy from the retailer. So effectively they're connecting the ecosystem, they're connecting to partners and in effect, supporting a better customer experience because it's giving the customer the option to choose what is most convenient for them. And we know from our data in Forrester that consumers will choose to buy from a retailer or directly from a brand, mostly based on convenience and what is their habit, what they tend to do most regularly. Yeah. And the preferences are constantly shift shifting. I mean, I think of small items that I could pick up on the way to my parents, for example, from the local CVS. If I shipped those, I would feel pretty bad about all of the packaging 
that came together just to grab those items. And sometimes it still is faster to go to CVS. Absolutely. Do they have everything? No. Is there an up, <laughs> up charge? Absolutely. But it still can sometimes be environmentally friendlier to do that. Yeah. Or you might have loyalty points with that retailer or you might need it immediately and you can't wait for the brand or to travel to the brand store if they have one. All sorts of contextual reasons for why a customer would need to do that. Are there examples where the brands are getting data from these partners? That is a really contentious issue, and particularly for brands and retailers, because of that idea of owning the customer. And so the customer data and customer insights being part of the IP of the retailer or the brand. But as different organizations are trying to focus on the experience of the end customer and change the way that they're working, there are more and more examples of brands and retailers for particular projects, like maybe it's for a particular marketing campaign, actually pooling together data, whether it's in a clean room, like with in conjunction with any GDPR regulations and all you know, approved in that sense, but they're actively sharing either the insights or the data to inform business decisions that they're making jointly. So this is happening here and there, but it's certainly not something that is uh, happening on a regular basis. On the other hand, there are other ways that brands and retailers and other organizations are sharing, whether it's assets or resources or data, to mutually benefit both of the business partnerships and the end customer experience. And one is, I shared the example of buy buttons being put on brands' websites. And so they're sharing traffic and they're sharing assets and driving traffic to retailers and benefiting from improving the, the resale. But also there are examples of you know, sharing resources, drop shipping. So a retailer will be selling something to the customer online, but actually it's fulfilled by the brand in a dropshipping relationship. So that means that there's less pressure on the retailer to take on fulfillment costs and inventory holding costs. And the brand covers that and the sales. So effectively the customer experience is still great, but it's being supported by both partners in a way that is benefiting both partners better and allowing the retailer to perhaps sell more product from the brand than they otherwise would have because they don't have the additional operational cost associated with it because they're engaged in drop shipping. Love that. And my husband who works in operations and drop shipping, I'm sure would love to hear that too. Ross, if you're listening, I don't know if you listen to my podcast, Ross, but <laughs> <laughs> this one maybe. Um, but but really the idea that it is a win-win you know, for folks in the audience who are saying, yes, I could see how this could be a win-win for us. What What is the initial conversation they should have maybe internally to start thinking about this? What's like the first activity? Gosh, that's a great question. And it's the answer is one of those annoying things if it depends on the organization, sure. unfortunately. But, you know, certainly for, you know, different brands, especially if they are very much reliant on retail partners, they're those re brands that are going to be selling through retail partners, no matter how much direct customer engagement they have, they need to start thinking about how they can shift the dynamics of their partnerships. 
Sometimes it is looking at what you can do internally with your team. So one example of a brand, they actually thought about how they could get the teams that are supporting their retail partners, like the, the trade managers, how they can align their goals with the retailer. So effectively, the brand's team and the retailer team have the same objective. So traditionally, you'd have a brand that the, the brand team's objective would be how much product can we sell to the retailer. And then we don't care. It's up to the retailer to sell it to the customer. Flipping the script and saying, no, the shared objective is how much do we sell to the end customer? Because actually that's what the brand wants in effect. And that's what the retailer needs to do. Mm -hmm. So they've changed the target for the brand team to be how much product is sold to the end customer which suddenly changes the incentive. It aligns both of the teams on the brand and retailer in terms of their objectives, but it also incentivizes the brand team to work more closely with the retailer team, to have more frequent conversations, to help with how they can improve allocation and replenishment and improve the assortment so that sales are, are getting better over time, rather than the old context of, Right. We've, we've sold our products to, to, to Walmart. Now we, we don't care until the next request for replenishment or the next sales cycle. So it's changing the whole dynamic and encouraging more collaboration, more joint decision making in effect and focusing both parties on the end customer. Thank you so much for this, Michelle. I think there was a lot there for B2B to C firms to think about. But I would also add there was a lot other types of organizations could learn from because B2B2C is really like that meta view of what's happening within an organization between a sales org, a marketing org, operations, CX. If you can figure it out with partners that previously did not have that incentive, didn't have that mandate from the top, then I think you could probably learn a lot from successful B2B2C orgs about what you could do internally to collaborate better. Absolutely. Glad you agree. And thank you so much for joining today. I'm going to have you back on if you'll allow me soon to talk more about journey centricity because that is a perennial topic, but really appreciate the insights and the research. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you to producers Ellie and Julia, without whom none of this would happen. If you want to get in touch, email us at cxcast at forester.com. As always, you can find us at Forrester.com or on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to like and subscribe and tune in next time for more CX Insights. <laughs>